Hello, welcome to CarCast and Edmonds Podcast. I'm Matt, the moderator, DeAndrea, here with Alistair Weaver from Edmonds.com. How are you? I'm good, thank you, Matt. Yeah, so pretty you, good. You, you've recovered from your from your Monterey road trip uh, in your in your Rivian. Uh, I finally made it back. Um, and then uh, Detroit Auto Show. Oh, I'm back from Detroit Auto Show. You were, I don't know, scattering the the, the planet doing something probably automotive related, but not the auto show. I was in Richmond, Virginia. Wow, right on. But there was no auto show. You were you were handling business, not cars specifically. Correct. Um, yeah, uh, you know, we, we talked about the auto show before it was, uh, it was a little small, um, but, uh, it was kind of interesting. And then the next day there was a UAW strike and now who knows, <laughs> uh, I thought we would do something a little bit different, uh, this week, since we are just a few weeks into launching the CarCast and Edmonds podcast, I figured why not dig into our host alistair weaver you this is your opportunity my friend to just talk about you <laughs> i want to get into that a little bit because uh edmonds is not the beginning uh you've been at edmonds for a few years now it seems like going on like maybe five years but uh is that right it's about five years right about five years yeah january 2018 was the big the big flight um well, let's let's wind it back a little bit because you got a pretty early start. Because one of the questions that uh, I get quite often, a little less these days than than a few years ago, was how do you become an automotive journalist? How did you get into this? Uh, how did you get into podcasting? Before anybody could realize they can get into podcasting, anybody can do it. We got a lot of questions like, how do you do it? I was like, uh, you just grab a laptop and a microphone, and you just start doing it. But um, it was just kind of an interesting question. Like people asked, how do you get into it? And uh, and for me, this was sort of a, a, a second career for me. I got my start in the tech space. Uh, when I was younger, 18, 19 years old, um, ran internet companies, built the company. Um, and uh, and when I moved out of the tech space, my, my love of automotive kind of brought me into that. And that's when I... I teamed up with Adam Carolla, and that was maybe 15 years ago. And we started going down this this automotive path as sort of a career. Uh, but I don't know. Have you ever had a job that wasn't an automotive? I feel like I've never had a job at times. I painted. I painted. Um, I was a painter on a construction site in my teens uh, during vacations. Um, but apart from that, not, not really. I mean, I guess I was this, firstly, I should just say that I get a little bit, even though I'm on a podcast and I do a lot of this sort of thing, I still get a little bit embarrassed talking about myself. And when I first moved to America, the, the CEO of Edmund sat me down and he said, I think I'd done a presentation where I'd probably come across as a bit British and a bit reticent, a bit sort of, you know, reserved. He said, look, you're in America now. You got to learn to talk about yourself, and you're in LA, so <laughs> yeah. bear with me, people. I'm gonna do my I'm gonna do my best, but I'm gonna feel pretty self conscious. Um, so where we where we began? I guess like most people who get into this industry, 
it started as a as a passion thing and at the age of 10 i started reading car magazines and this was the very early era of jeremy clarkson when jeremy clarkson first became first came onto the scene in in the u i know he's now a global star but this was when he was in the uk and he came along and made the whole car journalism thing look really exciting that before that had kind of been I don't mean to say it sound sound too disparaging, but it it sort of been a bit geeky. It had been, you know, if it, the, there was a wonderful character in, going before Jeremy got called William Woolard, who used to his famous signature was Woolarding, where he'd put a he'd put one of his f- foot on the front fender of the vehicle, and this was known as Woolarding in order to kind of introduce it, and it was all very kind of safe and sensible. And Jeremy came along and just completely shook the whole thing up by, you know, really sort of launching into a taxon vehicle on all these clever metaphors. I remember one, I think it was a Vauxhall Vectra where he basically, it was either Vauxhall Vectra or a Nissan Primera where he just walked backwards and forwards on camera for like an eternity and pretty much without saying a word. And his conclusion, basically, I cannot think of anything to say. And so he just shook about the whole industry and suddenly made this career seem really, really sexy. And that coincided with me just developing a, a passion for cars. And I think this came, it's hard to sort of pin it down when you're that age, but I think it came out a family friend, Richard Bailey. I'm going to send him a link to this. He was, um, it's all his fault. <laughs> he, he was, uh, he ha- always had cool cars and he used to drive me to school in cool cars and he used to read car magazines and he'd been a racer himself. And then he'd been uh, sort of manager of a race team. And he, had, I remember, had an M535i BMW 3 5 Series. And this is going back to the mid-80s. And this was not quite an M5, but it was a bit like they do today. But M535i, and it was black, and it just looked so cool. And I just remember being driven to to the train station in the morning to, to go to school at kind of lightning speed in this thing and just thinking it was so cool. And... Uh, and so I think that that kind of tweaked my interest. I remember racing on a go-kart in Canada against my brother. My brother's five years older than I am. It was basically, as most brothers were five years older, he was mentally more developed, he was physically more developed. But I remember beating him in a kart race and thinking, this is cool. I could, you know, it was like all these little things came together. And so I started reading car magazines. And I think by the age of like 11, I could pretty much tell you the zero to 60 time of every single car on sale in the UK. And I used to kind of learn this religiously and the prices and, you know, people who were writing car magazines who I went eventually went on to work with, you know, were like, like hero figures to me. It was crazy. So so that was kind of where the, the sort of passion initially started. And I remember my parents feeling like, why are we spending all this money on car magazines? And why is he sitting at school reading car magazines and everything else? But, you know, yeah, although car magazines ever... were, were pretty inexpensive back then. <laughs> Yes, you know, and like I used a, to keep like them all a, like at a home. Few, and... Like a few bucks, you get you get a magazine. Now I feel like they're ten bucks or something. Yeah, if you can well, even find true. one, you can even that's find true. a printed magazine. And the car magazine of the nineteen eighties, which was called Car, was, was this sort of iconic publication. Um, so yeah, that that was where it that's where it all started. Then I went to, um, so I went on through schooling. Then I went to um, Oxford University to study history because in England you tend to do quite academic degrees. And while I was there, I got into a radio station um, and I was running a sport team on a radio station. It's like 25 people. It's crazy. But looking back well, on it. Why why radio station? Like what led you into radio station? So already there was something with broadcasting that got your attention. Yeah. 
Yeah, I think like when you're a student, you go to these like student fair things. Um, I'm sure people listening been been to them, and you know, you walk around, and there was like either you could join the student newspaper, or you could, you know, some political society or whatever. And there were two things I joined. One was the Oxford University Motor Drivers Club, which sounds very pretentious, but really wasn't. <laughs> In fact, Mike Duff, who works for Car and Driver Magazine, he was he was like running this at the time, and. Uh, that tweet my net met interest, and then so did, so did this world of radio, which just seemed much more exciting than working for like you know the student newspaper. And we were pushing for the first FM license, which was a really big deal back then. We were actually the first student radio station ever to have an FM license in the UK. And I ended up running a sport team of like twenty five people, and and the guy who set the whole thing up is now a friend of mine and involved in the car industry, runs an emissions analytics company. And, and so anyway, we, this started, and I did like a four hour live show on a Saturday afternoon talking about sport, and and then through that ended up doing a car show with a guy from Auto Car, like a half hour car show, mm-hmm. and at the same time got into working for a regional magazine and doing a car column. So I was like, I don't know, 18 years old and I've got a car column and, you know, I didn't have any access to cars really. So I just like wrote about stuff that sounded vaguely interesting and was doing this radio show and then won a competition. There was a competition, which I think still exists called the Sir William Lyons Award named after Jaguar's founder. And it was a Jaguar sponsored thing. I'm saying Jaguar because somebody contacted me during the week on Instagram and said, don't try and pronounce things in an American way. Just keep going. So I yeah, just keep going. That. You tried it last going. week. I let it go. It's a, it's a, <laughs> it's a disaster. It's a disaster. So thank you for thank you for uh, thank you for reaching out to me and telling me just to keep going. So I won a I won a, a Jaguar. Uh, yeah, thank you, Stephen. Um, I won a Jaguar sponsored competition designed to get people into car journalism, and you submitted a couple of articles. You went for a, for an interview at the wonderful Pal Mal Club in the middle of uh, RAC Club in the middle of London. All very nerve-wracking when you're 18. And eventually I, I won this competition and, and that was designed to get you into a job in the car industry. Is it is it more interesting to write about cars when you don't have access to cars and you make it up? Or is it more interesting to to actually get in the cars and test them and then write about them? Like, is it less creative writing when you get to drive the car? Because as a young lad, 18, 19 years old, and you're competing, you're writing a column, you don't have access to press cars. You you compete in this, you know, you apply for this competition and you do well, you win, but no access to press cars. Yeah, it makes you more creative, doesn't it? I mean, looking like, back, and it made like like every month I wrote a column and I didn't speak to any PR people because I didn't really know what that meant. <laughs> Um, I remember doing my first ever interview with 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 David Richards, who ran ProDrive or runs ProDrive, um, and they were running Colin McRae in the World Rally Championship at the time, and then he went on to run the the Honda team in in the British American Racing in Formula One and stuff. So he was my first interview, and I was again about nineteen, but he gave me some of his time, which I've always been massively grateful for. And it was it was just cool because you don't know what you're doing, and some of that's really creatively free. You know, it's creatively freeing. Because you're not really trying to conform to a stereotype, you're just you're just doing your thing. And I think also that time everybody was everybody of my generation was trying to write like Clarkson, but there's only really one Jeremy, so you know everything was a metaphor and a simile and everything else. And Clarkson is basically on the air at this point. He's doing a 
a show and it's intriguing. And, you know, here we had basically we had Motor Week. Like that was that was pretty much the only show we we had, you know. Uh, so I guess he was just doing it differently. He was doing it differently. And then Top Gear, Top Gear actually, because I won this competition, Top Gear rang Top Gear TV rang me up and said, "Can you come to an interview in Birmingham in 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 the UK and talk to us?" But they didn't really say what it was about. They just said, "Come and talk to us." guy called John Bentley, and John Bentley was the guy that basically discovered Clarkson, gave him his big break, and he kind of built his career off that. And John now has gone on to become a, like a tech presenter. Good guy, really nice guy. But anyway, he sat down, and there was about three producers and the executive producer of Top Gear TV. So you imagine, like, I'm 18, I'm super nervous. I've probably dressed ridiculously because I've got no idea how to dress for, for this. And it was like a chat about, like, what I what I knew and everything else, and and then I just remember at the end of it, and I've spoken to John about this since, I remember at the end of it, we speak for an hour and he looked at my like, you know, resume and what I knew and everything else. He said, all of this is uh, absolutely first class, first class. But the problem is you've no sense of fun. <laughs> and he had this great, like posh, bring his head. You, you just have no sense of fun. And I was like, okay. And then went back to my, <laughs> university room and to my girlfriend at the time and i just remember physically crying because this was like you know this is what like like my dream and yeah. somebody's basically said not that i wasn't you know not that i wasn't you know like intelligent or didn't know my stuff that basically i was just dull. you're just boring you're just <laughs> yes, really. and you're an 18 year old college kid at their 19 year old college kid and there's like how are you the college kid and you're no fun <laughs> it's just I, like I, and i and i but i've gone into it like a serious thing you know like oh you know, like what does what does a what's a job interview? You know, what does what does this look like? And yeah, so you're supposed you to it. not be fun. It feels like, right? Uh, so, like, yeah, it was, yeah, it was, it was like a massive moment of, yeah, how to kill, you know, how to um, psych. I have the psychological scars this day, I suppose. <laughs> but the guy who actually got the job was Richard Porter, who went on to be the script editor of Top Gear, even when they relaunched it many years later as as the, the thing that became the global phenomenon and then the grand tour. And he's Mr. Sniff Petrol. If people follow Sniff Petrol on on Twitter, as millions of people do, and he has a, he has a great podcast as well with Johnny Smith. And he he actually got that job. He's a handful of years older than me. And then stayed with the show and TV all the way through. So at least it, you know, at least it went to the right person. But you and didn't know you were going more... in really for like, did you know what kind of job they were trying to hire you for? No, I just like somebody rang up my call. I didn't even have a cell phone back then. Somebody just rang up, got hold of me somehow. I can't even remember how and said, come to Top Gear and like meet everybody. So, you know, I kind of <laughs> drove myself up there and sat down and you know was dull and was told i was dull and sent on my way and i never worked for them again i worked for the magazine years later top gear magazine i did a lot of work for them but i didn't you know i never actually worked for tv show what when you got the call and you packed up and you drove up there what did you drive so my my first car and i was very lucky my dad my dad was involved in vehicle fleet and I was very fortunate that, that we I, my first car was a Peugeot 106 1.4 XT five door graphite gray, which will mean nothing to 90% of, of, of listeners, I'm sure. But this was, 
This was in an era Peugeot produced something called a 205, and then this was the follow-up to 205. There's just an era where Peugeot made, which French company made, amazing driving cars. They were just fantastic to drive. It was Pininfarina designed. Um, actually, was the 106 205 was was I can't remember if the 106 was or not. I think that might have been internal, but it was just a really cool little car, and it had 75 horsepower, but it weighed <laughs> nothing. It weighed like a thousand pounds or something, you know. No airbags, no. I want to say it probably had ABS, but it had no airbags. Obviously, a stick shift, you know, only passed your test. One point four liter engine, and it was the coolest thing. And I kept that all the way from my seventy, from when I was seventeen, to when I joined Autocar as a twenty-one year old, and was suddenly driving press cars and didn't need a car anymore. And so I got rid of it when I was twenty-one. But and- years, years later, I wanted to buy it back. This was like. I don't know, 15 years later, I thought it would be a really cool story to go and find my original car and then, you know, discover what happened to it. You know, it's been like an old girlfriend, isn't it? Like, you know, what, what great, maybe not the best analogy, but anyway, <laughs> thinking about it, thinking about it out loud, but, but, um, you know, what had happened to this car for 10 years and or 15 years. And then I found out that, you know, it had been officially kind of taken off the road and probably was in a mangled heap somewhere. So it was a bit depressing. Yeah. Okay. So the Peugeot 106, by the way, if you're trying to picture it, you can you can look it up. But it's a little two door hatchback. It's kind of like what we four have door here. Hatchback. Four. Oh, you, you can you have a four two door. door or a four door. You can have a yeah. four door, which is a bit more sensible. They also did something called the Rally version, which was really cool. Uh, but yeah, the four door. It's a tiny. It's hard to put into context like how small this thing was because there's not there's literally nothing. There's nothing on sale in the US that's got anywhere near small, this small. Like, something like a Mitsubishi Mirage is still bigger than what a 106 would have been. I mean, it, around that era, I think we had like the Honda CRX here. Because yes. I don't even so, know that we had the Peugeot here. So we yeah, would so have still, but it's still smaller but, than that. Yeah. Except we we don't get a four door CRX, we get a two door CRX. So. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, yeah, well, that's an attractive car. Good, good on you. Cool. Good on yeah. you. All right. Living so you go, you, uh, you're, you're writing articles, you're writing a column about cars that you can't drive. And, uh, you go and interview with, uh, Top Gear, uh, Clarkson breaks your heart, makes you cry. It wasn't Clarkson to be fair. It was the man <laughs> who discovered Clarkson. <laughs> All right. <laughs> but it's probably made me jump belly. I, I spoke to him years <laughs> later about it. We happened to be like at a function. And I said, look, this is what he did to me. And he was not terribly apologetic. He was quite an eccentric guy. And he's, he, um, <laughs> I don't know, maybe it made me the man that I am today. Or maybe everyone was just listening to it saying, yeah, well, it's quite obvious that the guy, you know, guy understood back then and nothing's changed, my friend. Do you feel like you're more fun now? No, not really. <laughs> am I, am I funner? Are you? Yeah. Uh, all right. So you go back to the, the dorm, you, you, you shake it off. Then, then where you go? What's the next step? You're like, so I'm the just next thing is focus well, on my history degree. <laughs> yeah. So I was then going to, I was going to go and teach English in Moscow or Moscow, uh, Moscow at, at the end of, so this is when I graduated in 98. So I was going to go and teach English in Moscow, which was for those who follow like the politics of this was the Boris Yeltsin era. So this was, you know, communism, but Gorbachev's gone. Communism is sort of gone. And it was this kind of Moscow was a real sort of wild West. And, you know, Yeltsin, who remember like had a big drinking problem and everything else. So he so I was gonna go to Moscow, live in Moscow for um for a for a long time, uh, and teach English, which looking back on it would have been amazing. 
But two things happened. One, I had a long-term girlfriend, so that was a bit of a that was a bit of a draw not to travel. But also, um, more, I think the you know another key reason was I got offered a job by Autocar, so Autocar rang me up, and I'd done a couple of weeks' work experience with them, like during the previous summers. So where you, you, these things where you go in unpaid and you work with them for a week, and then and then you come back. So. They rang up and basically said, look, we've got a road test assistant job going. Uh, well, first they offered me a news job, and I said, oh, I really fancy like road testing. So they kind of offered me offered me a job, and there was this feeling that these jobs don't come around very often. And I really ought to, you know, I really ought to kind of take it. So, so I said yes, and... I started, I left university as a 21, I think I was 21 in May. I left university in July or something, June, July, and college, as I should say over here. And then started work at Autocar at the beginning of August. So I was only just 21, and suddenly I was kind of like road test assistant. And Chris Harris, who went on to become like a Top Gear presenter and has built, built a big name for himself, he, yeah, he sure. started He started at basically the same time. He'd had a bit more of a relationship with them over a period of years. He's a bit older than I am. Um, so he started as well. And there's a few people from that era who are still very much, very much around, uh, Peter Haynes, who's now very, you know, one of the key players at RM auctions, RM Sotheby's, he, he was part of the road test team or joined us. So yeah, it was, um, it, it was a kind of weird time and I was 21. I had no idea what I was doing. But no now you're getting, really. now you're getting access to vehicles pretty much for the first time officially. Oh yeah, I remember like on day one, it was like, "Can you go and move this nine eleven in the car park?" And I was like, "Huh? Yeah, no like idea. me? What? <laughs> yeah." And and the guy who was my boss, Steve Sutcliffe, who still writes for Auto Express and Evo, and some people may, may remember his stuff, and brilliant, amazing driver and uh, good guy. He was racing a TVR Tuscan, which was this like five, you know, this absolute monster of a car at the time. He was basically a works driver for for TVR in the UK and. His idea of like, you know, is the boy okay? He would go out and I remember following him and I was in an M coupe. You know them M coupes? Yeah, sure. The, the M coupes, yeah. Um, and I remember being one of those and he was in a TVR and I was in this M coupe and he was just turning up the wick and turning up the wick. And I was like hanging on for dear life, you know, sweating profusely. And, <laughs> and that was kind of like the measure of, you know, can this lad drive? Is he okay? And, you know, does he seem like a solid, you know, solid? And, and the reality was I didn't know... I didn't really know how to drive and they sent me on some driving courses. I didn't really know what like being in an office was like or like what you were supposed to say, what you were, how you were supposed you know, like it was just so immature as a 21 year old kid. And I'd just come out of a very academic background to be land in a car magazine with people from the age of my age all the way through to like their sixties and stuff. And yeah, it was, it was a real baptism of fire in that respect. And, and what part do you feel like you needed to go out and learn quickly? You you think you needed to like learn how to actually drive? Like, like was was yeah, that driving... high up on the list, or or was there something else? Was it? There was I mean, sort the of writing. Driving... You have already won some awards. You were doing the writing. You had that uh, a couple of years under your belt with the writing. So maybe a little less nervous about that. The the writing bit. The writing bit was the yeah was the most uh, the, like the comfort zone um the driving i needed to, to build because also like this is before youtube sounds like crazy isn't it? this is like before anything like youtube this is before the internet i mean i remember 
at college, like email coming along. And I think in my final year of college, I finally had a cell phone. But then when I started, and mind this is like one of the biggest car magazines in the UK with a global reputation. We had no, we had no email. We had no internet. And then the internet came along shortly later, but only the editor of the magazine could have it because they were worried about what we'd look at. And then eventually email came along. But, you know, you had like a little book of contacts and you picked up the phone. And, and I had this old-fashioned computer that, you know, would crash six times a day. And you would, you know, and, and everything was still, all, all the photography was on film. So you'd still have that nice moment where you'd go out and do a photo shoot and you'd come back and you'd have to look at it on a, you know, through a magnifying glass, all, all the little images and stuff. Yeah. I sound like a really old man. I mean, I'm 46. <laughs> well, but but I'm it like, all happens. It, it all so fast, didn't it? It, it? it did. It all happened very, very quickly. Like when I said I started in the tech industry, uh, I started a web development firm and Yahoo was was a student directory at like it was like stanford.edu slash like some kind of student directory, whatever. And I forget the director was under Philo or Yang, one of the one of the founders like and it had like that that was it in like Netscape. The first Internet browser wasn't even on version one. When I started, it was on 0.96. Uh, I remember with the little pulsing end in the corner, it would breathe in this end, this Netscape end would breathe in and out uh, yeah, like that. And yeah. it seemed like, I don't know, it was just or not that long ago. It just seemed like it wasn't, I don't know, 24, 25 years ago. I mean, I guess that's a long time. I guess I am pretty old. But, <laughs> but, yeah, but it has yeah. been the pace of change has been, been, been insane. So, so yeah, and you're right. Suddenly you like throwing the keys to stuff and we were going to test tracks and I'm like driving a Ferrari for the first time, which was a 360 Modena and suddenly having to like do the numbers on the 360 Modena. And it was a funny, I think it was a passage of time. I remember like being left alone with a 360 Modena and some kit that was that, and our like testing kit, or I think we'd like had to rent some kit or something because our kit was broken or some, some story to it. And I came back with these figures. So we're talking six, zero to 60 quarter mile, et cetera, on this yeah. 360 Modena. And nobody believed it in the office because it was like, yeah, we don't think these figures look really fast. And I was like, well, I hooked the kit up and I drove down the straight and I braked and you know, I did it again. And <laughs> I don't know, to this day, like we ended up publishing the figures. We contact, I remember contacted Ferrari and I think Dario Barucci, who was the, I forgot the, I think it was, it was the test driver. And word came back from Ferrari that in hypothetically perfect conditions, you could run these numbers. You could, the, the car was capable of this. And I do remember like it had rained and then it was just drying. There was just like, it was almost like it was per perfect today. And so anyway, I think I still have the fastest ever Ferrari 360 figures, but nobody at the time really believed it. And <laughs> we decided to publish yeah, it anyway. I don't know about this new kid. I don't know if he, could, <laughs> if he knows how to hook up the equipment or drive or what, but maybe it was going downhill. <laughs> and I also remember driving back. This is like, I remember driving back from the test track and I had to stop for gas at on a... Uh, motorway highway and walking in and like you know when they say oh like what pump are you i remember yeah. like saying to the guy like oh it's the ferrari and just like like being so like like proud of us i just <laughs> and now just think like look back on myself and cringe it's like what an asshole but it was um <laughs> you're on your way to becoming american right there <laughs> it was just uh yeah this is before influencers so <laughs> I, I i don't know so that was that was i did that for i did that for a year and a half and then I got promoted to What Car, which What Car is great 
brand publication but what car's more about like real auto car was very much for enthusiasts so it's kind of quite you know it's it's a bit like doing this show we know we're talking to people who to some extent think like us like cars so it becomes easier because it's you know guys like us talking to you know people like us and then i went to what car which was and it was a promotion but it was much more about like car shopping it was actually kind of similar to what what um, a lot of what edmunds is about but as a 22 year old as i was then i'm like mm, this is a bit boring and it wasn't as creative and everything else um and so i was only there for a year so then as a 23 year old this is in about 2000 2001 i i basically left and set myself up as a freelancer which again looking back on it was insane like yeah, i don't hire anybody I don't hire anybody at Edmunds. We can't, anybody who joins at Edmunds has to be 25 at least for insurance purposes. So most people are like a little bit, a little bit older, but like to think that I like went out on my own at 23 and set up a, you know, went, went freelance and said, right, everybody, you know, here I am. <laughs> yeah, right. And come yeah, hire me, come hire me. But it, but it sort of worked. Uh, in fact, he worked in a, I look back on those period and that was like some of the most successful periods of my entire career because I was able to trade on the fact that I was super young and different. Um, and Microsoft gave me a job on day one. I did that for a bit. Then I did, uh, I just kept, I got involved in FHM, which I think was like the maximum equivalent in the UK, but, but was yeah, massive. Yeah. Yeah. Time. We know the magazine. FHM, yeah. Sure. And that was massive back then. It was absolutely huge. They were selling like, 750,000 copies a month and the population is only 60 million. So I got involved in doing their car column, which then opened up this whole world of access to me. And I just, it just sort of took off. I got involved in writing for Motor Trend and other things, sport compact car in the US, in Port Tuna. And it was just an amazing time. I was traveling 200, 200 days a year. You know, I was like a, a single guy in my 20s. And it was looking back on it, I probably didn't realize like how good I got it. This was before 2008. So, you know, there was like yeah. lots of money sploshing around, lots of opportunity. Um, and I was kind of willing to do the crazy stuff that nobody else wanted to do. And, you know, my rivals were, you know, had been in the industry a long time, were in their at least their 40s, sometimes older. And I just had a fresh perspective. And this is, I guess I was kind of an inf what an influencer would be today. But, you know, it was a very different time. So you're you're 23. You're out on your own. You're starting to pick up some gigs, like at the different magazines, writing uh, automotive columns. Not necessarily just for automotive magazines, like you said, like FHM and stuff like that. So you're yeah, the lifestyle stuff. Uh, so yeah, you're more into the lifestyle magazine stuff. Um, how long do you do that for? So I did that for, I did that for a few years, and I did a couple of stunts that got me noticed. I, I did I did a I did one world record for driving blindfold, which got a load of attention. I mean, this is like also like when you're 23 or whatever, 24, I think I was, where you just don't really, you know, you your sort of life preservation and like how you think about stuff is just different, right? And I discovered this world record for driving blindfold and I did 150 miles. I had to do a mile in both directions. You like go to an airfield, do a mile in one direction, turn around, do a mile in another. And the first time I did it, I borrowed a Jaguar XKR 100 Silverstone, which was a limited edition Jaguar XKR. 
And the only thing really I could hit was the timing beam, which marked the beginning of the mile. And I hit did you it. Hit it? You did at about a, at 150 <laughs> miles an hour, and I took off like the front corner of the car. And the only thing, the way it worked, like I had a helmet on which was taped up, so you couldn't see anything. And then I had a chase car, which had like with radio comms into my ear. But the chase car at the last minute there was a problem with the original chase car, and it was too slow. So I like took off, and this thing was too slow, and all I could hear in my ear was like. Go right, go right, go right, go right, and then suddenly get right, and then bang. And of course, like, I couldn't see anything. So I then this was actually for FHM, and they filmed this very, very early days of trying to film stuff. And I remember them trying to record me calling Jaguar and saying, "Uh, you know, there were like a hundred of these cars. Well, there's now like nine, nine and a half. <laughs> but but we went back a month later with an Audi and and managed to do it. And I did a couple of other. I did a real record for like number of donuts in a minute. Um, and then another one for driving, for reversing, like how fast could you go in reverse, which if you had a bike engine car, uh, there was a couple of those near where they had a couple of like bike engine sports cars. Uh, this was a Caterham. And if you put it, if you, because it had a, like a transfer gear to go. So you had effectively six speeds in reverse because the way they managed, the way they did reverse with the bike engine bike box was just to basically, you basically had the same gearbox in reverse. Okay. So you could do like, I think I did like 95 miles an hour backwards or something. I looking back on it, like I'm amazed I'm still here, but I am. <laughs> when you, when you, when you did the record blindfolded in the Audi, it was like 140 mile an hour average. Yeah. 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 And but then now it's been raised. A blind guy actually got hold of me and and then raised the bar and I actually worked with him. And then I ended up taking, teaching a bunch of blind guys like to drive on a circuit and that was a great experience and it became it kind of raised the profile of it and and yeah a lot of them are still doing some fantastic work this day so the guy that in a field of nothing hit the timing pole and then decided this is the guy we want to teach <laughs> we want to be yeah. our teacher <laughs> exactly it was kind of interesting because it was a it was a record and still is that was like open to able-bodied people kind of or you know sighted people either wearing a blindfold or or blind people and at the time i got a little bit of kickback from like are you taking records off disabled people which was never my never my intent and actually i remember it being then being called by somebody who was trying to break the record and he said actually no it was great because a it raised the profile and b it's actually quite hard when you're not when you're used to having a sense and take it away so and he was like really we just want to take on everybody you know it shouldn't be you know so it was an interest that was quite an interesting experience because I suddenly found myself in a bit of a kind of where like suddenly you had a reaction to something which was not what you intended. Um, but you know, things worked, things worked out in their end. Um, so I did, I did two bit. So I got this reputation for like stunt driving a little bit or just doing stupid stuff and then big travel adventure stories, which was great fun. And I did that for, uh, well, I didn't actually get a proper job until I joined Edmunds, but I, I sort of had a, I set up a company in between stuff. So, I mean, the company that you started at 23, you were getting the freelance gigs writing, but that sort of evolved into, or at some point you got more into production, more into the television side. Yeah, I got, well, I got, first I got a gig presenting a car show in the UK with Mike Brewer. Um, sure, yeah, I, know, I, know who, I know you know Mike and yeah. uh, he's, he who got on to a fantastic career and, 
uh, as Mr. Wheeler Dealer. And then it got really big when Discovery brought it over to the US. Um, so Mike Brewer is a good friend of mine. He gave me I like my Mike break a lot. He's a, he's a sweet guy. He, he is a, a lovely guy and he's got a really successful podcast of his own now. He He's a wonderful guy. You know, he is the ultimate hard worker. I was uh, just going like, to say that about them. It's like, he doesn't say no to anything. Every gig, every like, hey, you want to come to the award presentation? You want to be a presenter here? Do you want to unveil this card? Do you want to? He's just, yes, yes, yes. And he was just like, I don't know how to say no. Like, I feel bad. Like, I don't, when I go, but you're doing too much. You can't be at two places at once. And he's like, I could try. He's great. He, he and his, Michelle, his wife, they've been together forever. And I, you know, Mike, Mike's sort of the youngest of a big family. And he was just that classic. He was a, you know, he was a used car dealer who got a break in, in TV and just had this incredible opportunity to talk his way into opportunities, you know, tons of charisma. And he and I were chatting in a bar one day and he, we did a screen test at Mike Brewer's house. And he had this wonderful um, sort of old English, kind of you know large kind of a large stone property uh near oxford in the uk and he was terrific with me and we did it we did the screen test i remember now like bursting out of his front door to talk about i think it was like a cls amg and i'd done a i did one screen test previous to this for, for a show called driven uh which james may actually made his name on who then went on to top gear and the feedback I'd had was it all looked really good. Obviously knows his stuff. It's a bit like the dull thing. There's another word here. <laughs> he said, but it, the feedback from like the, when they tested it was, why is this small boy driving this expensive car? <laughs> because now I probably look my age, but back then I really did look like 12. And if I look back at pictures of myself, it's ridiculous. I think I was barely shaving. I, I just and watched it, a video of you hosting uh, when you were in 2014. So about 10 years ago, almost 10 years ago. I just watched that video. Yeah. Uh, of a caterum you're you're yeah. going on the track yeah and this you was like, 2014 yeah. you're like a yeah like a extremely tall baby like a yeah. giant baby <laughs> and there's two things in my personal life which age me i think but it um <laughs> it, it it um yeah so, so so where was it mike brewer mike, yeah, so, so mike, mike brewer. brewer you're at his house you do the so i've done i've done and... this screen test which has basically gone wrong because they said i look like 12 years old but you were fun uh, now, right? Yeah, you remember. You're I like, was, hey, yeah. You didn't well, maybe they back said he to looked top here and be like, yeah. who's fun now? <laughs> so, so Mike was on Driven, which was where James May made his name, and then he went to this other show, which was a UK-based show, and they wanted somebody who could be seen as like a driver or new, like a car guy. And Richard Hammond actually had been turned down for this show a couple of times, um, and then obviously his career didn't go anywhere. So, yeah, right. <laughs> uh, so then, so then I pop out of Mike's house and they were all terrific with me. And I did like a season of that. And then the show kind of changed a bit and I didn't do any more of it, which really kind of broke my heart because I, I loved working with Mike and I just, yeah, it was just a shame. It didn't really, didn't really continue. Cause I just felt like I was starting to, you know, find my voice. Um, cause back then you didn't really do it. There was no real internet video. It was a very, very early days of it. So you didn't really have an opportunity to kind of like learn you know, like learn behind the scenes. You were sort of thrown into TV and you had to kind of like find your voice in real time. So I did, I did a bit of that. Um, and then off the back of that, I got contacted by the Honda Formula One team and I'd started, they'd employed me to write some articles for them, which was, it was kind of like stuff like, 
can you you know what does a telemetry look like comparing MotoGP with Formula One? And I'd done the written stuff for them, and then they said, "All right, we had this idea. We want to do this new world of like web TV online video, and we want to launch this." And this is kind of right at the start yeah. of broadband, but most of it's still dial-up. So we want to do like Honda HTV. We want to sort of do like these videos behind the scenes at the team. And can you do it? And I said, "Yeah, sure." And I went home and thought, I have really no idea at all. Yeah. So I went back to a couple of guys that I'd worked with on the TV show, friends of Mike's actually, and said, look, can you help me? Because I've got no idea. And there just wasn't enough money to, there was no money attached to it or very little. So I couldn't like go to a production company and um, and go from go, go to a production company and, and go from there. So I had to sort of set this up, up myself. And... You know, it's one of those things where you say, "Yeah, I can do it," and then work it out back, work it out later. Yeah. So we went in and we started doing little behind-the-scenes films about Formula One, and it was stuff like, you know, it was it was the era where Honda had Jensen Button and Rubens Barrichello. Yeah. So they had like epic drivers, but the car was terrible. And there's there's a there's a documentary going to come out on the whole Braun era that Keanu Reeves is involved in, and they actually potentially using a bit of the footage from this area but it was it was an era where they were spending like 300 i don't know three or four hundred million a year they had in theory they had two epic drivers who were being paid a fortune and they were the car was rubbish and <laughs> it was kind of weird because my job was to go in and say hey jensen how are you doing really excited about hungary this weekend and everybody would kind of look at me and say well you know will hopefully come you know we might qualify 16th or something um and then and, and so i did that for one year and then in the second year the where the team was really struggling ross braun got involved and for those people who don't know it's where ross braun had had an epic career first with the benetton formula one team then with michael schumacher at ferrari mm -hmm. and was basically the guy i think i mean in some ways he he, he still still is i mean he's retired sort of retired now but he um he was just this absolute icon and he'd left ferrari and he'd gone off to fish basically because he was a big fisherman <laughs> okay and and then suddenly you know honda basically opened their checkbook and said look what will it take come and lead the team and i got a call at like one lunchtime that said basically get your ass to the factory now we've got ross braun and I remember like going up the highway at like insane speed. Uh, um, I don't know where the statues good, good thing you have run out now. But, good thing um, you, you learned to drive by then. Yeah. <laughs> so I arrived at the factory. It's like Ross Broad is here, and we did a we did like this little interview with Ross that went huge because. And I remember so it started talking to somebody who said, at, up to that point, the team had been really struggling, and everybody they didn't know whether they knew well they didn't know whether they could win they didn't know whether like they knew they had loads of money they knew they had epic drivers but they didn't know whether collectively they really knew what they were doing and well this guy walks in and i'm talking to i'm still friends with a couple of people with that era and they said we now knew that this guy knew how to win because he's just won eight championships or whatever it was with ferrari so like as long as we basically followed him and he gave us the belief we would we could win again and ross walked in like everybody cheered it was like and suddenly and then you know the next he took a look at next year's car basically wrote that off 
and then started development on this on this car. And it was fascinating working with him because I had no really know who I was. But if he saw me around the building, and I was only up there two or three times a month, he would always say, "Hi, Alistair, how are you doing?" And it was like. You know, you're just that like, like like that moment of just like how inspiring somebody can be just to like acknowledge you, you're in the room. Yeah. And a lot of the leadership at that time had their offices in kind of like a, a tower within the factory. So they were like on the top floor and Ross was like, not doing that. So put his office right in the middle of where all the design offices were and the manufacturing. And it was he was like just epic impact, how one individual can go in and, and really transform something. But then a year later, he um, a year later Ross, Ross and and the and the um, CEO a guy called Nick Fry went to Japan and was suddenly told that they were shutting the team down. And I remember getting a phone call on an afternoon that said, "Oh, we're just sorting the contract out for next year. We're going to do these DVDs. Remember those DVDs and yeah. something." And he said, "Oh, we got this weird meeting early in the evening. So anyway, I'll call you in the morning." Then I got a call back at like 10 o'clock at night that basically said, it's all over. They've pulled the plug. Honda's pulling out of Formula One. And everybody was just like, what? Yeah. And, you know, contract won't be renewed. And I always remember they gave me like a Seiko watch to wear on screen. Really nice one. And it had just broken. It was in for repair. So I never got it back. Never saw it again. And and then so that was that was that. And then Braun, there was a, this big saga, which I think this documentary is going to show. Eventually, the team became Braun. They got an engine from Mercedes, but had kept the same car. And then they went and won the championship with Jensen. But by that stage, I was out of it. And but we knew, like anybody, even me, who wasn't wasn't like close to it, everybody kind of knew within the team that the car was really good for next year because they'd not bothered to develop the existing car and really focused on next year's. So it wasn't that much of a surprise when the Braun then went on and uh, and it was still a surprise, but it wasn't as as much of a surprise. But so that was my career in Formula One. I worked for that, and I did some work with Renault as well at the time. But then that was kind of over. Right, but uh, the but significant I, part is this is what kind of started now another chapter, a production yeah. company. You were forced to create a production company because you couldn't afford to hire one, and then now you're like, this is my new business. Now I'm now I'm running yeah. a production company in in the and, automotive and it, space. And it was also at that time, you know, life had sort of settled down a little bit and i was it was it was like i can't be away 250 days a year i've got to like and i've got to build something for the future and there's also this is going to sound like the weirdest thing in the world to say but maybe this is my problem as a personality that i remember doing a bentley drive driving a bentley on ice and i thought and, it, and i just remember like going through the motions a little bit like i've done this and it was a terrible thing and i look back on it of, and i really you know like sometimes in life you want to be you kind of like want to go on to the next thing and the next thing and the next thing. Mm -hmm. And looking back on it, like it was so much fun what I was doing. And somehow I kind of talked myself into it that I needed to go and do something else. And with the Formula One opportunity, I kind of fallen into having a company. And it was 2008. And the, you know, the, what, what do we call it now? The Great, Great Recession? Great Recession. Had I, yeah, hit. yeah. The world had basically gone to the toilet. Um, and, and now it was like, right, what, what what happens now? Everybody was cutting freelance all over the place. So I took an office, which was dead easy at the time because nobody, everybody, there was plenty of empty office space in 2008, and set up this company. And I was editing a, I was working on a, a website um, for for a broadcast a couple of days a week, but that was a relatively small part of what I was doing. And I said, okay, well, let's let's give this a go. 
Um, and then, so I set up a company and ran that for the next uh, about 10 years till I eventually got a call from Edmunds. And and during that time, you you worked on various projects, uh, web content, but some documentaries and a couple of couple of cool films. Yeah, we did really good. we did some really fun stuff. We did like these crazy like digital. We did a digital art installation. Digital art installation. Actually, the website still exists. Gaucho G A U C H O Productions dot com. We did a we did a this really cool art installation where we took maybe talk more about this some other time. But we took a um we took the data set from a honda civic and worked with a japanese artist ryoji aikida to turn it into performance art which sounds like the dullest thing in the world <laughs> but was unbelievable we had an old turbine hall in east berlin which had once powered like communist east berlin and installed this thing and it's still like the coolest you know you're talking about like the dullard this was yeah. like this was the one i should have said to john bentley it's like look look how cool i am now because this was a really cool project um, and we did that. We did art installations. We did like TV documentaries. We did like a big documentary on uh, Isle of Man TT riders. So following like uh -huh. basically professional road racers around the world. Um, we did a Dakar documentary. Went out to Dakar with the first amputees ever to finish the Dakar rally. That would be a good subject for a pod. Maybe we should get one of the guys back on. The first amputee ever to finish the Dakar. 20, 23 days in the desert. It was an amazing experience. That was for discovery. And so we did, we sort of did all sorts of stuff. And if you remember that era, it's after 2008 and the world was a bit on its knees. Yeah. So we just kind of kept saying every time everybody said, Can you guys do this? We were like, Yeah, we can do that. And you just kept doing all of this random stuff. And we had a really nice team of people and we just kind of kept going. And yeah, looking back on it, there was a few opportunities where maybe the company then would have grown really big and maybe you know we did some of the early early stuff which today people would recognize as like drive to survive but you know probably a couple of times didn't quite get the breaks that we that we might have done and you know a few few things happened back then like brexit in the uk which you know had some impact and mm -hmm. suddenly I, at the end of all that i had this opportunity that i'd built a relationship with edmunds as their guy in europe and I'd done some hosting for them and then my company had produced some stuff for them and I'd done some writing for them. And they sort of rang me up and said, you know, would you ever consider moving to, to the U S and, um, if they're listening to me, so I'm sure they'll remember <laughs> this. They, they were very canny in flying out my girlfriend at the time, now my wife, and basically flew both of us out and we met with everybody and we, we kind of sat on the beach in, California. Actually, yeah. it was Bill's Pancake House in Manhattan Beach, near where yeah. I live now. And we sat there and we're like, eh, you know, this could be okay. There's nothing really <laughs> tying us. My wife's French and she'd only been in the UK a year. We we hadn't known each other very long. And it was like, yeah, you know, this could, if we're ever in our life, going to have an adventure and come and do something different. And the company we were kind of feeling was, you know, there's a lot of things going on in the back. It's like, okay, if, if, we either have to really invest in the company and really grow it, or let's take this opportunity to go and learn and, you know, experience life in America and come to come to California. And so we said, eventually said yes, after a little back and forth, said yes. And and then six months later, I remember delivering a TV documentary on world touring car racing on the 23rd of December, and then moving my entire life on like the 28th of December. 
and then being at CES in Vegas, you were probably there, Matt, on the like third of January or something. And just I have never been so exhausted. I was like falling asleep into my soup. It was like I was a shambles. Yeah. Um, but it was the start of this great kind of like American ad American adventure. And then suddenly I was doing a podcast with you know, I was doing a podcast with like some, you know, some guy called Motorator and a, a world wrestling champion. It's like, what the hell's going on here? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, that was uh that was pretty early on. You had only been at Edmonds for about a year or so, and we set up a I don't deal. think it was even that, it was like a few months. Yeah. I mean, yeah, I was so and, green. And so I I had set it up with your like marketing department and we did it, we did we kind of launched the podcast with with support from from Edmonds.com and uh you know, and then yeah, I just remember the the lovely lady over there, she's like, Oh, what about having uh, maybe one of one of our people be on the show occasionally? Would you like to have them on, on a guest and see how it goes? And they said, because, you know, we've got this new guy. <laughs> and uh, Sounds a bit weird. Yeah. And I was like, it's oh, a bit okay. Very, very dull, but, you know, it'd be all right. And they're like, yeah, let's, no uh, of fun. let's bring on the new guy. And I said, uh, eh, maybe, maybe. <laughs> I go, if he's not dull, you're right. If he's fun, we only want fun people here. And I need somebody who can really talk about himself because that's the yeah. American way. Yeah. I've just done 50 minutes of talking about myself. So I'm not going to go away and sit in a corner and sort of commiserate with myself. <laughs> well, that, that's enough for today. We'll, we'll give you a part two episode uh, at some point. But uh, listen, it's a fascinating story. And uh, some of it, uh, quite a bit of it, I, I knew uh, from just years of, of, of talking and being friends. Um, and some of it is uh, is new to me. I am uh, thankful for hearing your story. Thanks for telling your story. Um, it is it is fun. I think Top Gear was wrong. I think it's all fun. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. um, all right. Maybe so what that's do you say? the angst. You know, you all need that kind of. You know, you need that. So I'm sure psychologists have had a field day with it. You know, like like you need. I was always competing with my brother, and you need that something that's kind of giving you that that punch. You, you know, you're always yeah, fighting yeah. against but that angst. Look, there's there's definitely some things that I can relate to, like being put in a position where like failure isn't an option, and sort of not the you know fake it till you make it, but kind of putting yourself in a position where you're like, I've got to form a company or I've got to put together a production team and I didn't really know what I was doing. And, and you've got to start somewhere. And there's some things um, that I find very relatable and just sort of what I've done in building some businesses and trying to find a career. But, um, you know, but who knows, don't listen to me. I, I went from tech to, to podcasting to a beverage company. So a beverage company. <laughs> I mean, yeah. at least you've had a real job. I mean, I'm going to say, I feel like, I think I say as a like maybe as a close show, I feel very privileged in a way that I've never, you know, the, I, don't get me wrong. There were times, you know, certainly building a business and stuff. There were some very hard days, and you know, there were still, you know, there were times when I couldn't remember where you know with tough days and stuff. But there was never, I've never had a job that I haven't, you know, that I haven't, and that hasn't been a passion for me. You know, there's times when you haven't enjoyed it as much as you would hope, or there's been some tough times, but you've. I've always been incredibly lucky to have something both in terms of like creating content, which I love and automotive and motor racing, which is, which I love. So I think I feel very lucky that I've been able to build a career 
around something which you know remains a passion i still get out on saturday morning and take the kids to cars and coffee you know i don't, I don't yeah have, it's not like a professional thing yeah and you you drag your wife to monterey in an ev which i don't think she was yeah. anticipating when you said hey honey we're moving to america <laughs> we're like we listen to country music we're like fully you know we two kids are an american and we love trucks and yeah yeah and uh, the kids love uh, trucks the, the the baby loves the trucks it's funny how life, uh, you know, it's funny life's life's journey. And I probably haven't even thought about it. Like I just talked about it for 50 minutes. So um, would you would you ever move back to the UK now? I mean, it, it would obviously take a career change, but it, would yeah, it ever sort of be on the menu? I mean, I guess. I mean, at the moment, we have zero, zero plans, um, you know, parents go over and stuff. But it's it's there is so much to love about a, America um just in terms of you know i still think there is the best thing it's like psychologically britain the sort of always a british british culture and this is a bit of a generalization is around you know that people are set up to be knocked down that where i grew up in northern england in northern england in particular people didn't like you to succeed <laughs> whether it's a journey it's almost like an anti-success yeah. culture in the u.s there is still for me, it feels like anyway the sort of land of opportunity. Like there is still this sort of sense of American dream. Yeah, and it's changing you know, a little the, bit, but yeah. Uh, and the scale of the opportunity over here, you know, if you look at the scale of what we do at Edmonds, you know, we have twenty million people a month coming to the to the to the website. It's it's huge. Yeah, you know, you have big teams. Everything's everything's big, and you know, there's a lot of you know, for someone like me who who you know is pretty ambitious and then you know enjoys you know, enjoys that sort of thing, then, you know, this is a, this is a great place to be. I mean, you know, obviously I miss family and friends and sounds pretentious, but architecture, you know, like the old, old world architecture, my parents live in an 11th century village and things like that. So there's elements like that, that you miss. Yeah. But you know, life in California. But look, at, your wife is French and yeah, uh, I don't know, maybe, maybe that's your next stop. Maybe France. Yeah, my French wouldn't, my French wouldn't really cope with that. I don't think, but uh, <laughs> Her English is better than your French. Uh, her, well, she is fully fluent in English, um, <laughs> whereas I, I perhaps understand more than um, I understand a lot now. Shall we say? Yeah, I'm, and I'm, I'm working on it. I promise. <laughs> uh, all right. Well, um, both your kids, you should teach them Spanish. Just they saying. are learning Spanish. Yeah. And French, okay. Good, because you know. they're going to be out here. <laughs> yeah. I, I, knowing French as well would 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 be okay and then are you yes. going to teach them to say aluminum or aluminium just kind of curious. there is it's funny like because <laughs> at home they obviously hear an english accent and a french accent but then you fit here like drifting into like dada then my, my eldest is four and a half dada i want to go party yeah 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 okay it's like but she absolutely my four and a half year old loves loves cars i took her to, to school this morning in edmund's gt500 and she absolutely adores that car yeah. And she always gets into everything. I have something new. She gets into it. It's like we had the room. She said, Dada, is this fast? Yes. Can we go fast? And my wife, ever since the kids were born, my wife is like, you know, super, don't don't ever drive fast. Don't do this. And, you know, <laughs> whereas whereas my, my four-year-old is like, I have high hopes. Yeah. I just saw the GT500. I was trolling around your offices and I saw the the, the big bright orange. Yeah. We're going to sell it, Matt. We're going to sell it. We we can maybe talk about this on another show, but yeah. um, 
we're going to sell it sadly we're going to sell that and we're going to sell the corvette because they've kind of come to their the end of their natural lives for us they got to be honest the gt500 we kept because of all the u drag stuff but obviously there's a new mustang on the way and a new mustang here so you know maybe before you put that gt500 out on the market we should go head to head with my mach 1 twin turbo and see if a twin turbo six-speed manual is faster than a supercharged dct that's not a bad idea we should do that <laughs> I'm just going to put that out there. There's probably plenty of other things in your garage we could race as well. Uh, like we should any, make, any a little, ex, make a little any day of it. To, any excuse to keep that car. <laughs> yeah, just make a little day of it. Bring a few cars up to the track and we'll beat the hell out of my GT500. Now that I think I'm kind of done with the show circuit, I'm waiting for one text back to see if the car has to go back to SEMA. But it just means it's either done or it'll be done right after SEMA. Then its commitments are fulfilled Splendid. and i can start thrashing on it that would be great fun <laughs> uh, all right let's uh let's go ahead and wrap things up alistair thanks so much i appreciate it it's a wonderful story um yeah next week i know we've got a lot more to get into we talked about a few things that uh were kind of in our notes but we're going to just push it all to to next week i think yeah i think uh, yeah i'm off to Rensport next week which would be great to talk about the big porsche celebration and Yep. And all the, the social stuff, Edmund's social stuff is just Edmund's cars. I'm Weaver on cars. There's a few people seem to have found me on uh, on Instagram, which is nice. Always happy to answer stuff. So, uh, yeah, exciting. Next week, off to Rensport, Laguna Seca. And, um, yeah, lots more stuff going on. Uh, if you guys like uh, these new episodes of the shows, the CarCast Edmunds uh, podcast, um, give us a nice little review. Maybe some new reviews up on iTunes. It's been a minute since... We haven't really said anything about reviews in a long time because the show is like 15 years old. But hey, it doesn't hurt. Go back up there. Yeah. Get a few five-star ratings. I'll call Tell my mom. if you like, uh, like this show or not. And we'll keep doing it. All right, guys. Till next time, keep the air and the spare and the bag and the wheel. For the latest updates and call-in times, follow the show on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at CarCast Show. If you'd like to write in, fill out the form on CarCastShow.com. And don't forget to give us a nice rating on iTunes. CarCast is a Corolla digital production and is produced by Chris Loxamana. For more information, visit carcastshow.com.